This is the word of God, and may God write it on our hearts, but we may not sin against him. The Hebrews arrange the scriptures into three sections. Torah, Torah, that is the law. Torah is the primary word of God, the primary word of God. Secondly, prophets, including the historical books. The prophets shows God's word at work in geography and history. And then thirdly, they wrapped them, uh, they, they categorized the scriptures into the section of writings, which is led by the Psalms, and they shape our response uh, to God's word through the practice of prayer in the life of faith. I'm interested in our introduction this morning to challenge you, all of you, at the start to consider how will you respond to the word of God read and preached this morning. Torah, the word, it comes from the word yara, which means to throw something. And it's like envisioning a javelin, a sharp spear, for instance, and it hitting its mark. Torah. On this idea, a man named Eugene Peterson really helps us to think about these types of scripture when he says this, quote, God's word has this aimed, intentional, personal nature. When we are spoken to this way by God, piercingly and penetratingly, we are not the same. These words get inside us and work their meaning in us, end quote. You feel the weight of that? In other words, the right response to Torah, to God's speaking, can be found in Psalm 1. Do you remember Psalm 1? It's the gatekeeper of the Psalter. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Let me read it to you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law, Torah, of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree. Envision this. Planted by streams of water that yields its fruits in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see the image that this draws in your mind? The oak tree, the oak tree that you become when you meditate on these piercing words, when you take them seriously, they infect you. The blessing, the hope, the steadiness, the prosperity. My question to you at the start is, will you respond to God's word like this this morning and with your entire life? I hope and pray that you are on that journey today and will continue to. But let's ask another question, introduction here. What if you don't? What happens if you don't receive Torah, God's javelin-piercing word? Well, today we study prophets, okay? Remember what I said? God's word at work in geography and history. Obadiah specifically and the history, and the history surrounding Israel in this day is our main subject. And their subject here is, the, is the, the people who do not respond to God's Torah with faith. They are the Edomites, descendants of Esau. But be warned this morning. Be warned this morning, everyone, 
Esau has spiritual descendants still today. How do the descendants of Esau today respond to God's word? Well, Psalm 1 continues its gatekeeping of how to respond to God's word in its conclusion, okay? Listen, if the righteous are like a tree and all those things come to them from the streams of God's word, now Psalm 1, 4 through 6 concludes this, the wicked, the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see the image that this draws? The blowing around of hay and stubble? A life without God, without faith, without blessing, left only with the curse and the sadness of sin for eternity, I hope and pray that you will flee from this response to God's word today and will, cont- and will seek to understand and apply the example. That is the example of today's sermon as we encounter the violence of Edom. Our goal today is to respond in the first way with faith, to maintain belief, and then to practice obedience. That does come from understanding, and at times it comes from understanding the negative. And today we study the great violence of Edom against Jacob. Against Jacob. Our outline to help us do this is going to consider time periods today. I want to talk to you about four time periods today. We'll call them days uh, for your note taking, okay? Days. The first we'll look at is Esau's day. Then we'll look at Edom's day. Then we'll consider Yahweh's day, and then briefly we'll try to apply it. We'll say our day or today. So let's talk about Esau's day. Look at your text at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Let me give you context up until verse 10, and then we'll, 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 we'll be here. Obadiah does not follow the normal form of the prophets, okay? Uh, usually the message of the prophets, which are judgments against the wicked, whether that's wicked Israel, who's in idolatry, or wicked nations that reject God. It always, usually in the prophets, forms a, kind of the way legal court procedures work. So usually it's like this. There's court. So think about court today, right? Charges are brought against the accused. The case is heard in detail, and then a verdict is given, right? And this is most of the prophet's pattern when we study the Old Testament, but not Obadiah. Remember last week. This is our context, right? The main point of last week's sermon was the main point of last week's text, which is the verdict first. God gave the verdict on Edom first. Did not hear out why, but concluded that they shall be cut off, right? They will be brought low. So our context this morning is that this nation, Edom, is uh, guaranteed to face what? The full wrath of God's judgment against them. See last week's sermon. They are, as we concluded last week, non-elect, destined for judgment by a righteous and holy God. Why? Because of their evil, stubborn pride. That's all we got to last week. We didn't get the details. All we learned about this nation ultimately is that they're fully and finally judged and destroyed. But why? Okay, now we began to learn the why starting in verse 10. And the time frame comes into view with a personal flair. That's why I've titled this first day that's in view in verse 10, Esau's day. Can we read it again? It says this, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. 
How is Edom judged as a nation according to this verse? They are covered in shame. They are cut off from God forever. Okay? The image of covered with shame, it's like you wear your shame like a garment that encompasses your whole body. It's a scarlet lettered heart known by all, but felt exquisitely in you. This is how they will feel. The idea of being cut off in this is that they are damned of God the way that you would cut off an infected limb to stop the disease from spreading in your body. Now, why? Because that just goes with the first nine verses. But why? Well, look at the beginning of this verse. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. You see this. So we ask, who is Jacob? And how has Edom, the nation, done violence to him? Okay, well, we, we, we could continue and just move into the next verses. But the proper name Jacob in place of the people and the nation of Israel or Judah is used. And therefore, we need to pause, point one here, and really understand better the nature behind this relationship before we move on. Now, we've seen this before last week. Do you remember? Edom, the nation, was called Esau the person in previous verses here. Right? But now Judah, the nation, is called Jacob, the person. So we will call this moment a flashback. So yes, remember how I told you our sermon is following like days, right? Well, this is days in a broad sense. And so let the harp roll, right? Right? And go with me back in the Bible's timeline to a flashback to understand why this verse 10 is so weighty like it is. Now, if you remember in Genesis 25, God records through Moses, as he writes it, the story of the patriarchs. And when we get to the story of Jacob uh, and Esau, it is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. This story is brother against brother, mother against father, and then after them from Genesis onward, generational curses that both sides walk in for hundreds of years, spilling over into war and rumors of war. It is sin and sadness and a familial pain. It is the pain of a broken family under the curse of sin. Twins in the womb that represent the national struggles of both of these nations in our prophecy of Edom and of Judah. Listen to God's comment about these baby boys in Genesis 25, 22 through 23. This is what God says. The children struggled together within her. So here's Rebecca pregnant with Jacob and Esau. And there they are. And the Bible's comments is, okay, the children struggled within her. And she said, this is her praying to God. If it is thus, this struggle, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, this is God, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, that's all I'm going to quote from this story. But I'll tell you, you should read the back and the fourth account of Jacob and Esau's life in Genesis to fully understand verse 10 of our text. We don't have time, but let me tell you, here's a summary of these men, Jacob and Esau, and their heart as it is shown to us by God. We learn that Esau has a wild heart, a pagan heart, a godless heart. We end up learning Jacob has saving faith in the promises of God. He differs in this way, 
But listen, we learn it is because of the kindness of God, not because of Jacob himself. You see, it's really good that God tells us about his choice to love Jacob in this story because based on works, both of them, Jacob and Esau, are worthy of condemnation and not of God's love. You must understand this. Now, if you want to get real clarity real quick, you skip to Romans 9 in the New Testament. So note taker, you've studied Genesis 23 and 24. Now go study Romans because by Romans 9, 10 through 13, Paul, who is so concerned that no one be found a child of Esau's descendants, God, he wants God to save to the uttermost every man, and especially the Jews he writes to that are rejecting Jesus and rejecting the promises of God's love. And Paul writes to them, oh, he could just be Wish that they were saved. And he uses an argument that you need to hear in Romans 9, 10 through 13. Here's how it goes in that, in that portion of scripture. Paul has taught about Abraham. He's taught about the promises. He says, not only so for those, but also when Rebecca, that's the pregnant woman I just read to you about in Genesis. When Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So we know we're talking about this family. Verse 11, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. So you hear all that qualification before the boys did anything. She was told, verse 12, the older will serve the younger. That's a quote from Genesis. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that is a quote from Malachi. We don't have time to get into Malachi 1. But if you uncover the judgment of Israel in Malachi, God, as he goes to judge Israel in the book of Malachi for all their idolatry and, and, and tells them only a remnant shall wait to look ahead that, to see that there is a John the Baptist and a Jesus coming. As God writes to them, he starts the book of Malachi by pointing out that he has made a choice. Jacob I love, Esau I hate it. So before we continue to understand Esau's day on what is revealed to us personally in the story, we need to consider that our message of Obadiah, it is a part of God's purpose of election that it might continue. That is what Paul says of Genesis. That is what Paul says of books like Obadiah, since he is referencing this relationship, and Obadiah is as well, just like Malachi. This is the message of the Old Testament. Now, is that hard to understand? No. It's very clear as revealed. Is it hard to believe? Yes. Yes, it is. And here's why. God loves Jacob, but God hates Esau. But Jacob, we learn in these stories, is a deceiver. He steals. He tricks. He abuses the relationships in his life to get his way. In the text we learn in Genesis, Esau is immoral. He's carnal. He just doesn't care about holiness. He only seeks pleasure. These two are the worst. And this family feud they have spills over not just from them, but it goes back into their forefathers, and it will follow them as they become nations. You see, the people of Israel, Jacob has 12 sons, right? And as Jacob has 12 sons and receives the name Israel, what do they do? They walk in the sins of Jacob. They're just like their father. They're, they're stealing, lying, thieving people. They're stubborn, stiff-necked people. They rebel against God in the wilderness. They rebel against God and take those 
things which they shouldn't in their promised land. They are exiled in 800. They are exiled in 500. They are, they are the worst. And what about the Edomites? They're the same. You see, examples about Esau's day, it includes the rampant idolatry I just told you about in Israel's history. Okay? But it also includes, and especially for our text, Esau, Edomites. You see, not only is the violence done to Edom when it is here in verse 10 for you, not only is it trying to, as I'm trying to show you, encompass the full-orbed understanding of God's purposes as it plays out in the life of this patriarchal family, but it also is a, is a stone you know, kind of set up to point you to all the history. And when you study the history, which we don't have time, you will see that there was a time where as brother to the Edomites, the people of Israel, as they left Pharaoh's Egypt and they tried to make their way to the promised land, there is a story in Numbers where the Edomites said, you will not pass through our land. And, and Jacob's descendants begged them, why not? We'll even pay you for any of the water or food we eat. I know we're a great people, but brother, let us come through. And the Edomites say, no, we will, we will not let you come through. And if it wasn't there in Numbers, in the time of the kings, when Israel had Saul and Israel then had David and Israel had Solomon, go read the accounts in First and Second Kings and Chronicles. What do you find? Do you know who Israel is conquering? Because they come out to war against them? The Edomites. You'll find numerous examples. Violence did not stop beyond the wound. Needless to say, when the Bible says that great violence has been done in this family, it's an understatement. It's an understatement here. And that is Esau's day. That's his time. That's historically, and it's painful to encounter. But nonetheless, we need to understand it. This is personal, guys. Verse 10 made this personal. It made it personal. And that was intentional on Obadiah's part. It was intentional on Yahweh's part, which we will get to. But first, we need to go from Esau's day to now Edom. Edom's day in our next point. So what is the day of Edom? Look at verses 11 through 14. We get this list of accusations against the nation of Edom as we focus on one main event in their recent history. This is the event that Obadiah is written for, and it is the, the, prof, the, the, the ministry of Obadiah centers on it. So look at verse 7, on that day. You see that? On that day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth. Jacob's wealth. And foreigners entered Jacob's gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. The best view on the timeline that, that, that these events fit is a day when the invasion and a capturing and a destruction, destruction of the city of Jerusalem happened by Babylon. Babylon was a world power at the time that came in around 586 BC. We know that they tore down the walls of the city of Jerusalem, they pillaged the temple, and they did horrible crimes against Judah. Now listen, at the time of that horrible destruction, this Bible verse has told us in 11, and it will continue, that Edom, the brother, did nothing. They didn't come to help their brother nation Israel. They stood aloof up in their lofty mountain hills we learned about, right? And they did nothing. Now, Psalm 137, verse 7, if you're a note taker, you need to write down things like this. Psalm 137, 7. It comments on what Edom did even more. Listen to what the psalmist says. Remember, O Lord, I'm quoting Psalm 137, 7. 
The psalmist is praying. So remember, guys, remember the intro? We need to respond to the text. Here's, here's God's people responding to the message. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, the Edomites said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand the horrors of this moment. Edom cheered on the Babylonians. They cheered it on. Do you see entered his gates there? That's a translation of a Hebrew idiom there in, in the text. Uh, in, verse, in verse 11 there, entered his gates. One commentator explains what it means is, it means that entering the gates and taking over the town, which typically involve violent actions like raping the women, slaughtering the men, and pillaging and ransacking the place. And Edom stood over there cheering it on. When it says that they cast lots for Jerusalem in this verse, this is talking about on that day when a, a nation like Babylon would conquer a city like Jerusalem, they would begin to cast lots to who gets the bounty, who gets the land, who gets the treasures, who gets the, the, the people we learn even. Don't think that's what's here. You know, Joel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Joel is a contemporary. If we go to Joel 3.3, again, note taker, write this down texts that help us understand ours. God says the nations that he will judge when he's talking in Joel 3, what have they done? Joel 3.3 3 says, they have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. This gives us commentary to understand. Edom did nothing while little boys and girls of Judah and noble leaders in the near in and near the the city, after being conquered, were traded like conquered cattle. Little girls for wine. Little boys for prostitutes. And Edom did nothing. Now, worse than that, we learn in this setup verse for us that they were not just watching, but look, they were like one of them. You see the end of it there in verse 11? Their guilt was not only by association, Okay? It was worse. And next, Obadiah describes, as a prophet does with poetry, the specific acts. And what, what, what you have in verses 12 through 14 is what uh, theologians call the godless list of horrors. God disappears. Do you notice that? You know, you, you notice it in, in the Hebrew, but if you look at these verses, 12, 13, 14, God is not mentioned here. Instead, evils are mentioned and they're listed. And not only that, we pick up this rhetorical fashion. What you have here is eight evils. There's eight of them that Obadiah wants to bring up. These are eight things that the brother Edom should have not done to, to the brother Jacob. This is, this is how brother should treat brother is the standard in view. And yet this is how brother did not do it. And there's eight of them here in these verses. Now, I say it that way because, you know, what he does is, is he picks up, you know what a rhetorical device is? What that means is it's when, it's when I begin to talk like this because I'm drawing you in, right? And I want you to hear the seriousness of the moment because when I draw you in and I bring forth a point, you understand it. That's rhetoric. That's how we use the voice and inflection and things. We also can write in such a way. And so the poet here and, and the deliverer, he writes, and we get, we get six in verses 12, 
and 13, we get six of these that follow the same pattern. But then if you'll notice in 14, it gets disrupted. The pattern is intentionally disrupted at verse 14. We do not stand at the crossroads and instead of in the day, we have to cut off his fugitives. Do you see that? To cut off his fugitives, do not hand over his survivors in the day. You see how it changes? That's the climax of these. And so what's happening here is the way that this is being presented to us, it is a rising crescendo of judgment against Edom. And even better is this is all past tense for Obadiah, but he puts himself there and speaks in the present as if he's watching it so that you have to watch it and you have to see how just the judgment of Edom actually is. Okay, does that help you? Eight evils. Let's look at the first six and we'll do it pretty quickly here. But this is six evils that a brother should never do to a brother. Look in verse 12. Edom gloated is the first one. They gloated over the day of his brother. The second one, Edom celebrated. That's different than gloating, right? They celebrated, right? They rejoice over Israel's ruin. Do you see that? They're rejoicing over Judah in the day of their ruin. Thirdly, you see that they boasted. Edom boasted when Jacob, his brother, fell there at the end of 12. Do not boast in the day of distress. They boasted when, J when Jacob, their brother, fell. Look at verse 13a, the first part. Edom invaded the sacred city of God's people. Do not enter the gate. There's that phrase again, of my people in the day of their calamity. They invaded. They, they were with the, this nation Babylon. Most historians believe that they were themselves likely conquered in some fashion by the Babylonians prior and therefore made deals with them for self-preservation and were willing to take part in these, uh, the, the destruction of their brother. And so they, they've made deals. That's why the first part of the judgment was, look at you out at the gates with the enemy, right? Remember that last week? Remember you, you know, Edom, you think those are your allies? Oh, how swift your destruction will be. That's in view here, but they, they joined in the invasion. 13 continues, they gloat again, but look what they gloat over. They gloated over the calamity the calamity of disaster. And then finally, the sixth in 13 there, Edom claimed Jacob's property. Cast the lots with Babylon. Do you see that? Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. They looted the wealth of their own brother. They got rich off of their brother's destruction. The last two given in verse 14 are the worst. And that's why, as I told you, the pattern, pattern's abandoned. It's abandoned abruptly to give us a climax. Look at verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. This is heavy, guys. When the people of Israel were running for their lives, you have to envision this. They're running from their lives, escaping from the city. Soldiers have abandoned the outpost. They're saying, everyone, get away. Run as far as you can. All the hidden women and the children, they're fleeing. They're making their way out. The Bible says here that they stood at the crossroads to cut off fugitives. Cut off can be translated slaughtered. They killed them. And then the ones that they didn't kill they actually captured and handed them over bound to the nation of Babylon. You know, when you grow up with your brother, you know the ways in which they try to operate. 
They're either a fight or a flight person. And you begin to learn someone you love and how they'll react to a situation. Edom knew the secret routes out of the backsides of Jerusalem into the hills. It knew the routes of its brother. It knew it knew its proclivities to go a certain way. And rather than meet them there to bring them up into their own hills and say, come brother, come, come be with us. They met them there to kill them and then to cuff them if they would surrender and take them to the very people that they were running from. Can you imagine brother killing brother? The situation and word choice is intentionally evoking the idea of Cain and Abel. It's the same language Torah-wise here when it talks about handing over, cutting off, and, 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 and leaving survivors. It's got this murderous plot to it. Jealous brothers meant to watch each other's backs not being there, but turning in hatred. You can see Cain rising up with the stone to crush uh, his brother Abel in the field when you think of the crossroad intersection as, as, as men. I can't imagine it, but just men of Jerusalem with their children in tow, thinking they're in escape. There's their brother, and they rise up with the spear to kill the father and to take the children back to the evil Babylonians. As mentioned, the pattern on or forms abandoned now. The poetry calls us to understand as a reader the pain of this day. It makes us think of the evil of Edom. Was Edom Israel's keeper as a brother? Yeah, they were. They were supposed to be. But how spectacular then the violence is rendered here. This is Edom's day. We, we have uh, seen the history now at this point. We, we know the history surrounding Esau's day from their past. But, and now we've now just studied together Edom's day. But before we move on, let's ask some hard questions, RBC. What do you make of such calamity? Such raw honesty? Such a preservation of history here? What do you make of dead children? Of raped women? Of betrayals? Brother against brother who abandoned people in their hours of need. It's sobering. It's quieting in the shock of it. But this was the day of Edom. And Scripture lets it stand here in the long line of days of Esau. And it fits with the way our days are described. I mean our New Testament people days. Could I not ask you the same thing about headlines today? I mean, when you really sit and think about someone walking into a school and massacring children, you get there, right? Like You know the headlines that come before you often, and you understand them, and you can interact with them, and you can feel the weight of them, and you can want from them to see justice happen immediately. At least if you haven't lost your humanity, you can do that. That's just not unique to the church. That's unique to history. But what do you make of such calamity? What do you make of such godlessness? Well, Paul made something of it. He wrote to the Ephesians and he outs it. He says, look carefully how you walk, okay? Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. We rush past words like that in the New Testament. But Paul's saying, today's days are just as evil, the days are evil. Esau's day was evil. Edom's day was evil. Ephesian church, today's evil. Timothy, leader in the church, Paul writes, understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, Timothy. What difficulty does Paul have in mind? Divisive church members? Sure. I mean, he's talking about that stuff in 1 Timothy, right? 
He's talking about warning those in air. But he also talks about thieving false teachers who would sneak in like a brother and grab and lead away weak women, he says in 1 Timothy 3. He, he doesn't just have the women in view, but he has in view the, the target, the way that they'll come through, right? Abusing like, like a Jacob, like an Esau would do. The days are evil and they're just as confusing. Timothy, be wise. Ephesian church, be wise. How can you do it? Well, listen, what do we do with the evil days in Scripture? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do with the weight of their reminder? When you study Edom and you think about this, I hope you realize the reminder of your own evil days. Now, you're like, why would you hope that? Well, because there's an answer we're about to study. But first, you've got to stare at it. What's God's purpose in election here? How could God do this? <laughs> Is his, are his hands bloody? Is he indicted here? You think, Wes, careful, you're, you're on the edge of blasphemy. No, I'm on the edge of the prophets. <laughs> this is the questions they ask. And they needed answers. And we need answers too. Where are you, God? Where are you? Are you there? <laughs> when we look at the full story, we consider the way to the history. Obadiah has given these days references so far. But here's why he's done it. He wants to arrest your attention. Is your attention arrested as I preach this? I hope it is. Because in your arrested attention, as you await at the end of verse 14 here, you're like, oh, these days, the day of calamity, the day of calamity, the day of calamity. Is there another day we can see God? And like a hinge pinch in this book, verse 15 thunders, y'all. It explodes. That's why it was a misprint. That's why my brother read it. I'm glad he did because we need to see verse 15. This is an incomplete sermon without verse 15. I came to that conclusion. So poor outlining has met good planning. All right. And then finally, so here we go. But look, verse 15, it's a hinge pinch in this book. You need to understand it now and it'll carry us into next week. But it talks about another day, Yahweh's day, the day of the Lord. All right. We've seen Esau's day. We've seen Edom's day. Look at verse 15. It thunders. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. So here comes Obadiah's message and its rhetorical value, right? What's it doing? A future prediction explodes, and it comes from the cosmos. It's like a heavenly bomb goes off in the middle of this prophecy with the intent there. The Hebrew does it. The, the rhetoric does it. It is a declaration. Now listen, it is a declaration of what will be. And you need to understand, not of Esau's what will be. Not of Edom at 586 BC will it be day. Not of Edom in 70 AD. Do you remember from our, our overview of this? Edom gets wiped off the pages of history in 70 AD when the Jerusalem temple is done. We, we don't know Edom anymore as a nation after that. But God's not even referencing this. That, that can be included. We'll talk about that when we apply this. But right now, really, that's not even in view. No, no, no. What's in view here is destruction on the pages of history, not in 70, not in our history, not in 2022, but of a hidden future certainty where God will judge all evil, all wickedness, all the nation's wickedness in a final sense. Okay? God lays down the day of judgment where he will finally lay to rest all evil. It will be accounted for. And it is to be thought of as near in this moment. Okay? It is thought to be near. A new day, a future day is in view. 
And it is not only for the judgment of Edom. It is for the judgment of all wickedness. Look what God spoke there through Obadiah. It's important. Intentionally now, we join God in heaven as Obadiah brings the message to them to say what? Zoom out. This encompasses all the nations. Wait, wait, wait. I thought we were talking about Esau and Edom. Well, all of a sudden, it's verse 15, thundering about all the nations. Well, brother and sister, because your God is big enough, if you believe in Yahweh, to say this. His answer to the nitty-gritty of dead children in Jerusalem's walls is to stand high and above it in his infinite wisdom and power and declare, I will have justice over this one day. It is an intentional zoom out, and it is a promise. It's the final judgment. We call it the eschaton. That is the, the eschatological judgment, the final judgment of God, the end of our wicked world and the recreation of it, the final redoing of a very broken situation. This promise of God is meant to have two very intentional effects on people of faith. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 people need this kind of power, okay? Here's why. Two reasons. It gives hope and it gives a strange peace. You ready for that? Let's understand it, okay? Let's talk about the hope that this gives. What is this verse meant to be? I think chiefly it's meant to be hope for true children of the promise. It's meant to be that. If you're a child of the promise here today, trusting God and his promises, then you will not dismiss this. But let's say this about the hope that this gives. I think more often than not, this is actually dismissed. And the Bible would agree with me here. You see, in the days of the prophets, the day of the Lord is treated with extensive clarity. It seems rare here because you've been hearing nothing but judgment from this guy, right, for 14 verses. And you're thinking, what, is the, what, is a, what does the day of the Lord have to do? But listen, this concept right here in verse 15, it is like the topic among the prophets. And you need to understand that in, in their day, Israel's hearing over and over again while in exile, whether it's the Assyrians and, and all of the long prophecies associated with that, Isaiah, Jeremiah, right? Like prophesying to literally kings that rise and fall and generations that come and go. And all the time these guys are talking, they're obsessed with, there is a final day. There is a final day. And some had begun to dismiss that. That's going to hit home for some of us. They began to dismiss it. They knew it. Sure, day of the Lord, right. But what about right now? What about how hard this is? What about how I can't get my eyes off of the fact that we're still stuck over here in Assyria, God? God says to, through Amos, he writes to Israel alongside the other nations. He says, this is Amos, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. He's mocking them. Why would you have the day of the Lord? He says to them, It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. The day of the Lord is, is as if a man went into the house, leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Gloom with no brightness in it? You see, God's mocking Israel because he told them, you can have rest in me. I am going to take care of this. Vengeance is mine. Rest. And they said, we're restless. What's the day of the Lord? Yeah, yeah, we get it, the day of the Lord. It's going to be you know, awesome and terrible then, but what about right now? And, and Amos mocks them and says, do you really, do you really get it because you don't? Here's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's horrible. It's horrible for those who don't trust God and his promises. It's like a fleeing from a, a lion, and you think arrogantly, I got away from the lion, go me, and then you meet a bear. You feel that? 
Amos is showing the real nature of the day of the Lord to counter the lie that is often believed. Often Israel would assume, like Esau assumes, that vengeance is God's. Yeah, but we need something. We need to do something. So they say things like, give us a king, give us an army, give us a ruler, give us wives. We need warriors. And they, what do they do? They plot and plan according to the way of the world instead of the way of God. The way of God would have them in exile awaiting a sign, awaiting the promise to be fulfilled. Here's what I'm trying to say. This attitude about God's surety, even in its brevity, right? God is brief, but he is sure. And to not trust that will kill your hope. Israel should hear verse 15's thunder and they should respond with Psalm 20, verse 7 faith. They should say, God, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's how they should respond. Do you respond that way? Brother and sister, today in 2022, listen to me, the hope that God's future day of judgment can bring to someone is real. And it can come to those who are experiencing such real pain as the people of Israel were here in the account of Edom's violence. There is a day, a final day, where the actions of Yahweh will be known universally as he destroys every evil. No unbeliever escapes this judgment and no unbeliever's wicked acts are not dealt with wholly and fully by God in this day. Israel can have hope in exile while they wait on Yahweh patiently. The question is, can you wait with them? That's a question for the church. We skipped the final mountaintop, or excuse me, we skipped to the final mountaintop in verse 15 because the final coming of the Lord is to be a surety in everyone's mind. But surely we, the church, we, the remnant of Jacob, we, the ones who are looking to a root from the tree of the stump of Jesse, a lion from the tribe of Judah, one who came and and lived as we couldn't, died as we deserve, rose in power, sits by God, will come in that eschatological reality we're studying right now on that great day. Surely we, the little mountaintop called the church, can understand that we have seen the Lord if we've studied Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, have we not? This is where the gospel fits for us, but it doesn't for the the text here. But we need to say it because what is the day of the Lord except the second coming we know of our Lord? Because what did he do in his first coming? He dealt with evil for his elect, (laughs) right? He came and made a way where there seemed to be no way. He was the way and the truth and the life, and no one can come to God the Father, holy, just, swinging the power of verse 15, Obadiah. No one comes to that God except through him. Why? Because their violence against themselves and against others and what was done to them, that violence was done violently to the Son of God on their behalf. And so they stand as we sang in the New Jerusalem. I love the line of that hymn where it talked about how we are sheltered. I didn't even see it in my prep. So I just want to, just singing it with you today, I just, I was shocked again by just the reality of Jesus's, Jesus's power. Dust that formed the watching crowds takes the blood of Jesus. Feel the earth is shaking now. See the veil is split in two. And he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. City that kills the prophets, right? And here's our king, Jesus, shielding 
shielding us from the day we deserve. Esau had a day. Edom had a day. The church has a day. And what keeps us from experiencing the full weight of God's wrath on that final day? Because we have the knowledge and we plead the cross. We plead it. We plead with consider your first coming. Consider not our own works. We're just like Jacob and Esau. But consider your decision to hide us in this shelter. Not of the prideful mountains of our heart, but in the shelter of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Jesus came to serve and suffer for sinners the first time. The second judgment, when he comes, the final judgment, he comes with flaming fire, a sword out of his mouth. He is the thundering God of of verse 15. We wait with hope, do we not? Now, you may say, well, you're imposing Jesus on the text. They didn't have that kind of hope. Brother and sister, yeah, they did. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, Yom Obadiah knows that these are a people that if they have obeyed God's law, they've been disciplined to understand the day, the day, the day. Their whole Levitical system centered on it, Yom Kippur, the day of the Lord. And now, now here, they can make sense of this. They can say, oh, we looked with faith. We looked with faith. We looked with faith. God will honor that faith. That's a saving faith. Just like you and I look back to Christ what do we say? We say, Yom Kippur, God, the day of atonement, ultimate, your son, our savior. And we look and we look with faith, with faith, with faith. One day God cracks the sky open and he comes back. The day, right? Yom. They knew this word. They knew. They were trained. If they were trained with the eyes of faith to pray and believe and to hold on, to wait with hope. Okay, so this verse should inspire hope. Here's the second thing it does. Not as detailed here, but this is, this is interesting. I think it gives a strange peace. It gives a strange peace. Let me try to explain. This text also deals with the wickedness of Edom specifically. Did you notice that? Look at verse 15b again. Okay? Day of the Lord, boom. And then look at verse 15b. As you have done, Edom, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is God's law here, my friends, okay? Okay, since creation at the time of Noah, God said things like this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You hear that? The ownership of God. Since God's first written law. Now I want to acknowledge the limit of man here, not God. Because when we get Exodus, we get a bunch of specifics. They're called case laws. And specifics, sometimes we begin to doubt Exodus in its wisdom because we're like, oh, like, you know, why is it talking about this weird law about, you know, bathing, a, you know, cooking a, a goat in its mother's milk? But you got to get back into that context and do some heavy work and realize the principles are solid. From Genesis and Noah's account, then God says in Exodus, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Then later we receive from heaven this principle. Now listen, this is paired with case law. It's weird, but you need to hear this. It says, when men strive together, this is Exodus uh, 22 and starting in 21, when men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fine. So if the babies are okay, she'll be fine. As the, as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm to this little one, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. What's God showing here? He's showing the pattern of his retribution, the way, the totality of God's judgment upon the wicked. Now, since 586 BC, the text says Edom's deeds shall return on their own head. It is invoking that Exodus principle. 
They deserve this. And they should, and this should give Israel, the chosen children of God that are trusting God with hope, it should give them a strange peace. Now, why do I say it that way? Because listen, God has an answer in his judgments, guys. He has an answer in his laws, his decrees, his secret knowledge at times kept from you because every eye and tooth and stripe and burn matter to God, yes? But how do they matter? How can you know? You can trust that he will give an answer to them even when you don't have it now. Someone who has experienced such trauma as Israel has, has in this text, they will find strange peace in this. Now listen, it will not be a sick and twisted vindictive fantasy where others suffer and then they feel bad. That's actually called unforgiveness and it is not the way forward. The trauma Israel suffered was first from its own sin's consequences. Then we learn, when that's dealt with, that it is then compounded so heavily by learning that their own brother was the one that betrayed them here. Now, verse 15 is the beginning of God's answer, right? And there is more to learn about Yahweh's day as we study Obadiah, and that's what this strange peace affords us to do. And so here's our last point in closing, our day. So I want to bring all this together now. And I want to talk to you about what it means to have hope and strange peace a little bit more clearer, even more. Listen, it's really hard to conclude a sermon like this. Uh, I don't want to just tag the gospel on the end. I've already preached it to you, but I don't want to tag it on as if it's something cheap because it's not. But we do need to preach it because let's deal with the hardest fact about Obadiah. Okay, the fact that Israel must still deal with their own, uh, their own sin, even while these horrible things outside of their control are happening to them, is a reality. Here's what you need to understand. It's not said here, but when Babylon is invading, Israel cannot control that, right? I mean, you go read Habakkuk and you learn that God is the one actively allowing, even using people like the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, for his purpose of disciplining those who he loves. So outside of their hands, great evil happens to them. But God will always come to people about their own personal sin. This is hard. I think it's the hardest thing to deal with when you study a book and you consider the things we're considering like Obadiah. This is why. You must always deal with your personal sin, even when you are greatly sinned against. So Israel should be asking, is someone abusing you? Yes. Yes, they are. Have you been abused? Yeah. Are they a victim of horrible circumstances? Yes. But listen, the Bible remains clear. Romans 3, Paul writes and says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Listen to this. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. That's everyone, brother and sister even those who have only been sinned against greatly. Why? Well, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. This is huge. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Let me make this clear. It may seem like bullying to some to have victims examine their own sinfulness but it is God's way. It is God's way. You must understand the nature of mercy and grace, irrespective of your circumstances, if you are to be forgiven and forgive others. Okay? People who have been so wronged, like the children of Israel by Edom here in Babylon, people that have been so wronged will try to take vengeance into their own hands. 
and it will not go well. You know why? That stuff's like poison. As one person from church history said, when you, when you want vengeance on your own way, in your own terms, it's like taking poison. It's like drinking the poison and hoping that the other person dies. That's the root lie of unforgiveness. So when you study such horrors like this and you realize what is God calling people to have hope in, he's calling them not to join him in verse 15 first and say, yeah, they'll all be judged. Let them be damned, God. No, instead, he's actually calling them to realize you would be damned. That's who I am. But before you were ever born, twin boy, <laughs> before you could ever even think right or wrong, for the purposes of my holy good plan and election, I have said and I will do as I do. And you've got to come to grips with that. And where do you come to grips with that at? At the feet of the cross, if you're a Christian. The most humbling place for any person the people of Obadiah's day, you and I today, is to realize that even if we've been infinitely, we think, wronged by people, we have, in one, one transgression, though many, we have infinitely wronged the holy God of the universe. And we stand no different than Edom. So we dare not ascend, verse 15's hill, with the hope, unless we can actually ascend it. And what does this tell us? It tells us no one can ascend it. I'm not trying to be a bully to anyone. God's no bully, but God will have every person look to Christ, and those are the ones who may ascend the hill to then understand his judgments. You will not have the strange peace of letting the horrors and the difficulties of your life fade into God's big sovereign care. You will not have that peace until you have dealt with, are you his by the blood of his son? Has there been a way that you have experienced it? We must look to Christ. God put him forward, Romans 3 says. Why? To forbear, to pass over former sins. In other words, if you experience the hope and peace of this promise of God's judgment wrongly today, you will experience God's judgment rightly on the great day. Let me say that again. If you find yourself experiencing the hope and peace of the promise of God's judgment here in verse 15, you take it and manipulate it wrongly today, you will experience it itself rightly on the great day. This is not to promote pride in God's elect. This is to promote the ultimate humility and a begging of God to stay his mighty judgment for a little bit longer so that those who I love can come along with me. That's the context of Romans 9. That's the whole understanding that we get missionally. We also get it personally. There is an answer for every evil. And the tragedy of our, of our Savior dying at the hands of wicked men there's never been a tragedy that's worse than that, okay? And, and the victory of the resurrection creates a rule that we only must interact with suffering and point people to Jesus. That's where they will find the strange peace of being a people marked by great sins. When you, when you have seen your own sin atoned for by the suffering Christ, you gain a new appreciation for his second coming and you eagerly await it. That's the offer that Obadiah gives in the text to the people of Edom, to the people that, that, remember, it's still loving to speak judgment, right? God's still speaking to them in this day. And especially, though, to his children, Israel. This was Israel's hope and peace as they experienced the betrayal of a brother and the violence of someone that they loved. And yet they had an answer. It was enough for them. As I told you, this is a hard sermon to conclude, right? What's beautiful is, is that verse 15 was a hinge pin, okay? 
It, it, it helped us make sense of what has come. It will, however, continue to unpack. Next week, the end of this book is a glorious conclusion, guys. It is so much hope, and it is so, it's so centered on the hope of, of God, and it is so full of, of just wonderful promises for being a people of faith. And so my challenge to you in closing today is to, before we just skip past the judgment, let's take time in response. When we sing now, and then when we pray together, I'm going to ask us today to pray for some things. So we're going to pray about abortion. And we need to feel the weight of praying for our country. And we need to use whatever rhetorical device we need to use, like Obadiah did in their day, to sit for a minute in the patient rooms with a young lady that's considering murdering her own kid. We need to do that in prayer with faith. We don't need to grab the vindictive, vindictively the judgment of verse 15 and apply it now and say, oh, on the day of the Lord, they'll meet what they'll meet. No, no, we need to pray together and ask God, there's still time. While that heartbeat beats in the baby's chest, God, as the heartbeat beats in the mother's chest, will you stay your mighty judgment for a moment to show them Christ? Christ has made a way and we believe it together. I'm going to ask you to pray for things like that. I'm going to ask you to pray for our nation's leaders. You best believe that there was probably a cheap high that the people in Obadiah's day could grab the judgment of verse 15 and say, that's right, you take that, Babylon. Or they could sit in their exile with patience knowing that even if this king topples us, the king of kings can topple his heart. Oh God, topple his heart now. Lord, keep him. Because if you don't, then one day, yes, he faces this but then they can live as exiles should live, right? See, brothers and sisters, there's a whole bunch of application we get to do. I don't even begin to question or try to come up with scenarios on a personal level about how you here today either have faced great evil in your life or will have evil done to you. But I trust that the God of these abandoned, dying in the streets of Jerusalem saints they could hold on with great hope. Why? For the day of the Lord was near upon all the nations. As you have done, it'll be done to you. Brother and sister, hold fast to the hope we have in Jesus. Walk in the strange peace that God affords in his kindness about his great day. And man, come Lord Jesus, right? Let's pray. Father, help us to respond, God. Help us to sing. Our Lord, lift up our weary throats and voices. God, help us to sing to one another psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. You are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And like you, there is no other. Lord, help us to find a lot of hope in Jesus today. Father, also as we then just shift our minds and, and gear here together to pray aloud, God, help us to pray with a new vigor. Help us to believe with the, the remnant children in Obadiah's day that the great day was coming. Oh, like Paul, we would stop it. If we could, we'd give up our own salvation if it meant that those who do not believe would come to know you. God, we, we confess your, the mysteries of your election and your purposes in it. God, they are, they are so hard for us. And we wrestle and toil where we shouldn't and debate. Help us now to find humility. Help us to find the humility of inclusion. That God, you haven't said or taught us these things to ostracize us. You've, you want to bring us closer still. So God, help us to get close to these hard truths so that we can hold out a more accurate, clear gospel message to those who we love. Even as they stand in judgment and unbelief, God, help us to stand next to them pleading that they would repent and trust Jesus. Give a new edge of vigor to our evangelism, God, as a result of believing truths alongside Obadiah. We ask this according to your great will in Jesus' name. Amen.